catching up uh, with each of you in the days ahead. So it's been many weeks now since uh, we were in the book of Acts uh, together. And uh, this morning we're going to read a little bit of Acts chapter 2, which we read in uh, totality um, uh, some time in the past. And I want to just set the stage before I invite you to stand to hear just a few portions from Acts chapter 2. Luke uh, gives us a picture of the last moments of Jesus with his uh, followers in those 40 days after uh, the resurrection. Uh, Jesus told them to remain in Jerusalem until uh, the promise of the Father was fulfilled in the coming of the Holy Spirit. And then uh, Jesus gave them uh, this promise this way. He said, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria to the ends of the earth. And so the church gathered for the uh, 10 days uh, and prayed uh, uh, earnestly in a a united way for God to fulfill this ancient uh, promise and to send the spirit. And of course, that uh, comes on the day of Pentecost. So if you'd please uh, stand. We're going to read three short portions from chapter 2, beginning in verse 1. And when the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all gathered together in one place. And suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind. And it filled the entire house where they were sitting. And divided tongues as of fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. And then in verse 14, But Peter, standing with the eleven, lifted up his voice and addressed them, Men of Judah and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and give ear to my words. For these people are not drunk, as you suppose, since it is only the third hour of the day. But this is what was uttered through the prophet Joel. And in the last days it shall be, God declares that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh, and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your young men shall see uh, visions, and your old men shall dream dreams. And even on my male servants and female servants, in those days I will pour out my spirit, and they shall prophesy." Peter goes on uh, to preach a message, and in verse 37, we see uh, the response uh, to it. Now, when they heard this, they were cut to their hearts and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. And with many other words, he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, Save yourselves from this crooked generation. So those who received his word were baptized, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, and the breaking of bread, and the prayers, and all came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done 
through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number by day those who were being saved. O Lord Jesus, may you be pleased to add your blessing through your Holy Spirit to these the words of your Holy Scripture. For we pray in Christ's name. Amen. You may be seated. Paradise. What comes to your minds when you think of paradise? I have some friends in Atlanta who painted on uh, the wall that they viewed uh, in their uh, bedroom every morning their vision of paradise. It was a tropical uh, beach (laughs) that was painted on there. That's what they wanted to see first thing in the morning. Uh, I have other friends uh, for whom uh, being in Montana, uh, beholding snow-covered mountains uh, before shimmering like mountains abundant with game. That's their vision of paradise. And I still know other people whose idea of paradise is the small town that they grew up in where everyone knew your name. The Bible speaks of paradise as a garden in its very beginning, a place of beauty, abundant resources, filled with potential waiting to be developed. And it ends in a city, the heavenly Jerusalem, the city of the living God. This is John's vision in Revelation. The city's portrayed as the bride of the lamb made beautiful as the garden uh, with the tree of life. This is a garden-like city where people uh, dwell together, crowds of people dwell together in peace and joy. But for many people, the city is not their idea of paradise. Now, to be sure, cities uh, have their draw. Everything from uh, impressive architecture to cultural events uh, to shopping and dining, and most importantly, work. Cities offer jobs. But for many people, these benefits are overshadowed by poverty, crime, pollution, congestion, and hopelessness. At their worst, cities are dirty, dangerous, drug-ridden, and desperate places. And so it's not really surprising that we've romanticized the solitary life in the wild, far from uh, the city. You can see that in in our movies, in our stories, that's paradise. But the Bible, on the other hand, finds in the city the portrait of God's home that awaits us, a place of perfect safety, of sharing, of justice, and joy. In the scriptures, the wilderness symbolizes danger, struggling, testing, and hardship. 
It's a place where you were alone without the protection of kin or community, away uh, from uh, where God himself uh, dwells. In other words, it's a picture of hell. And behind this symbolism of the city and the wilderness, we are to see God's purposes for humanity, that we were made to dwell together with each other and with God. And here's the thing that really I want you to see this morning is that God intends that every church be a preview of paradise, a heavenly and holy community. But some of you may be thinking, you've got to be kidding, Pastor. Surely, after serving in the church uh, for more than four decades, you know what the church is like, don't you? It's a place where people rub each other the wrong way. People can't admit their failings. More than a few are proud and uh, stubborn, and they will as easily uh, fight with you as to shake your hand. An honest assessment of the church is, well... It's not much like paradise. What could make a church into the preview of paradise, a foretaste of it that's so compelling that people would want to pay any price and would be willing to experience any inconvenience to be a part of it? Well, it's seen here in our text. It is the transforming presence of the Holy Spirit that changes us into a new people who relate to each other in a beautiful way. The book of Acts gives us a realistic picture of the early church, a healthy and growing church that is, in fact, flawed. Hypocrisy threatens its purity, and interpersonal friction uh, mars its harmony. But Luke intends here uh, for us not to look back and say, those were the good old days. It would be nice if somehow uh, we could experience those. That's long gone, though. No, he wants us to see that this is a pattern for the presence. This is what the church looks like when the church takes seriously all that the apostles teach. It's a portrait of what can happen when people are bound together by a belief of the gospel. They understand its implications and are experiencing its blessing. This is the pattern of the prevailing church that depends on the presence and activity of God to exist. And it's a pattern that can be renewed, revived, and realized in any church. Now Luke wants us to see uh, the connection of the promise of the coming of the Spirit that Jesus reiterates. The prayer of the disciples there in in chapter 1 and verse 14 and the coming of the Spirit and the creation of a new uh, community. It's really important that we pull together what Luke has uh, pulled together for us and not see this piecemeal and fragmented. And what we see is this, that the Holy Spirit creates an empowered community and the Holy Spirit creates a joyful community. Now, the creation of empowered community 
uh, is in fact what Jesus is promising when he says, when the Spirit comes, you will receive power. What kind of power? Well, it's primarily the power to testify to Jesus, to speak about Jesus and what he has done. And Luke, well, he's painted a picture, it's a portrait uh, for us, and there are just various elements that make this up, and just as an artist uh, creates a portrait with elements. Jesus makes this promise that they would have the Spirit empower them to witness in Acts 1.8. In in chapter 2, verse 4, we read this, the disciples are filled with the Spirit and begin to speak. And then verse 11, they begin to declare the wonders and the mighty acts of God in creating the world and in executing the plan of redemption. And then in verse 14, Peter stands up and he testifies to Jesus. And in verse 37, we're told the message came with such power that those who heard it were convinced of its truthfulness and convicted of their uh, sin. So that 3,000 people uh, turned to God. This promise powers the power to speak. It's the power to testify in the power of the Spirit that people might respond to the gospel. Now, I, I know many people think that the power here is primarily the power of miracles, and we'll say a little bit more about that next week. But you will notice that Luke tells us it's the apostles and not everyone who is engaged in doing uh, miracles and that these uh, miracles testify uh, as they did in the life of Jesus to the claims of Jesus. They're his credentials. They validate the message the apostles are bringing. The great miracle on the day of Pentecost is that 3,000 people respond to the gospel with repentance and faith. Now, there's another element in this portrait. Luke wants us to notice that Joel's prophecies fulfilled. Every member of the new community is a prophet. And so we see all 120 of the disciples have tongues of fire resting upon them. And all of them speak in the diverse languages of the nations. We see all of them have the power to witness to Christ. And this is normative. This is not something extraordinary. This is what uh, is to be true in every church of every Christ follower. Now, we will not all do this in the same way. Not all of us are given the power to testify in large groups, nor all of us given the ability to persuasively uh, reason, nor are all empowered to think on their feet and engage in a dialogue whether it be street preaching or or in some other setting with people about the gospel. But every member of the community that the Holy Spirit creates, uh, every member can testify to him. And that's because every member of this community has experienced the great act of salvation and is filled with the Holy Spirit. If you're a Christ follower... Are you prepared to testify to Jesus? Can you give a short summary of the gospel in under five minutes? 
Can you tell your story of what Jesus has done for you? Now, most people actually need to work at that uh, to do it well, uh, to be sure that they don't leave out something that's important. But there's another factor in being prepared today. People have very short attention spans. And so you need to be able uh, to tell your story, not in 15 minutes or more, but in five or less, uh, because that's about as much uh, time as you're going to get with many people uh, to share what Christ has done for you. Um, You really need to be able to have both a long and a short version that's crafted well. This power to speak makes us bold. Peter boldly points out the culpability and guilt of the crowd, uh, their part in the death of Jesus. Peter doesn't, well, he doesn't round off the sharp corners of the truth. However, boldness is not arrogance. It is instead a deep confidence in the truth of Christianity. Boldness is completely compatible with compassion for the pain and brokenness of life in a fallen world. And so Peter pleads with them to leave the corruption of their generation, the misery that comes with sin. And it's compatible with humility about our limited knowledge. We don't understand all the mysteries of life in a fallen world, and we cannot explain to people why it is that they have the specific events of suffering that they experience Uh, in life. And it's humility about our ongoing need of a Savior as well. We don't testify to Jesus as those who say to people, once I was messed up like you, but now I've got it all together. That is not how we talk to people about the gospel. We will never outgrow our need for the Lord Jesus. This boldness is a freedom from the fear of man. This boldness enables us to get over the fear barrier that we feel in sharing the gospel with people uh, we know who may not like that, who in fact uh, may treat us differently after we share the gospel. Boldness is not anger, and it doesn't necessarily have to be confrontational. It can be winsome instead of harsh. It doesn't have to be condemning in its manner of speech, even as it deals with the reality of sin and human rebellion. Boldness is a courage to witness and to press even hard questions in relationships, to speak at times with tears to people because we know that their rejection of the gospel has eternal consequences. And boldness is not defensive. It's open uh, to hard questions. And it's willing to say, well, I don't know. I'll have to get back to you about that. One of the most fruitful practices of churches where people are intentionally bringing uh, their non-Christian friends Uh, to see worship and to hear the message of the gospel uh, proclaimed is that the opportunity is given every week for people to dialogue with the pastor or other leaders about what was said. It's a, that environment's an environment where it's safe and it's okay for people to raise their questions, 
to voice their objections, uh, to even express uh, their deep unbelief about what they've heard that day. Of course, it requires great confidence for a church and its leadership to be willing to have such a meeting, not to feel threatened uh, by it. Uh, But where it is done and where the pastor goes through the challenging experience of having such uh, conversations on their feet, in time it bears uh, fruit and people come uh, to know Christ. We must not miss the connection Luke wants us to see. That the power of the new community to testify from the description of the new community that's given in verse 42. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to the fellowship and the breaking of the bread and the prayers. Now, literally tens of thousands of sermons have been preached on that verse. And very often it has been done, uh, disconnected, removed from the context uh, and the story in which uh, Luke uh, records for us here. And when that takes place, often what happens is the church largely or even exclusively thinks of itself in terms of these activities. And that's a serious error. And what happens as a result frequently is that in practice, the church becomes inwardly focused because what we're really about is doing these uh, things and it gets off uh, mission. The prevailing church is an evangelizing uh, church that testifies to Jesus. Its members are not hiding from the world. They're not huddled in a sheltered uh, community. Uh, The prevailing church sees God acting and bringing conviction of sin and drawing grace that results in conversions. And Luke emphasizes this in verse 47. And he will do this repeatedly throughout the book as he recounts the response to the gospel. The response, often he even numbers how many people respond to the gospel. He's forging the link between this new community and the conversion of outsiders. This link is so important for us uh, to see. God's the great evangelist. It's the Holy Spirit who does the heavy lifting and turning uh, people uh, to Christ. Uh, We're not responsible uh, to bring about someone's conversion. It's not up to us. It's not uh, because of the persuasiveness of our words uh, or the manner in which we speak or how comprehensive uh, we are or that we've nailed every last thing just so. No, God's the great evangelist. But we can't use that as an excuse to be silent or for our unwillingness Uh, to both look for and expect God to give us opportunities to testify. The prevailing church hungers to see God's saving power, and so it prays. It offers sustained corporate and private prayer for specific people, urgently asking God to work, persevering in those uh, prayers, uh, which sometimes are not answered in some short period of time. The prevailing church is willing to examine itself. And if it sees no one coming uh, to Christ to take responsibility and own its part and to ask hard questions, 
among them whether we've adapted our approach and methods to the people that God's placed in our Jerusalem. Or have we really prioritized this? Is it really important to us? Or is it just something we say is important? Those are hard questions to ask and, and face. The prevailing church is not only empowered to testify, but it powerfully attracts. And this is so because the Holy Spirit creates a joyful community. And the new community attracts because of its joy. Verse 46, And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they receive their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who are being saved. See, that's the picture of the church being attractive. The joyfulness of this uh, community was attractive to people. They saw a, a kind of shared life that was not a part of their experience. And they, they hungered for it the way uh, you might when you pass a bakery and smell uh, bread baking or perhaps a donut shop and you smell that uh, wonderful uh, uh, fragrance of fresh uh, donuts. And so they were drawn uh, to it. And it is a welcoming joy. Verse 47 can be translated this way, having good will toward people. That means they were generous, gracious toward everyone. They were joyful and gracious. Now you have a model of graciousness that's hard to surpass in Dr. Glenn Connect. And those of you who know him, have been with him, know that he exudes graciousness and joy uh, to a level that very, very few other people, at least in my experience, uh, ever uh, do. He is exactly what Luke is talking about here. You see, they didn't bristle when an outsider came in who was skeptical or who had different values or different points of view. No, this gracious attitude was a significant factor in the turning of many more people to Jesus. Verse 41. And so those who received the word were baptized, and they were added that day about 3,000 souls. Luke is making clear something that's been lost, at least in America, that when people personally and individually respond to the gospel, they are not left as individuals. They become part of a community. And as a part of that community, they did certain things together. It's not these activities that made them a community. No, it's their community was created by being united to Christ uh, through the ministry of the Spirit. The Holy Spirit created this community. And everyone in this community was filled with God's indwelling presence. And so they experienced awe. Awe is a vivid awareness of the presence of God here. We, we do, as Mark said, often experience awe in the midst of nature. It's one of the most common places. But the awe here is not a natural awe. This is a supernatural awe. It's more than knowing about the character of God or the great acts 
of uh, God. This is a sensible manifestation of uh, God. In the Old Testament, we see it when the glory cloud appears at the consecration of the temple and the tabernacle. In the New Testament church, uh, there is not a visible uh, cloud. But that joy is present in the church and is actually seen in the emotional, spiritual, as well as intellectual engagement of the church in the act of worshiping the living God. This experience of being captivated by God and transformed in his presence resulted in their being devoted to each other. Their love for one another testified to the truth that in fact uh, Jesus was who he claimed to be and accomplished our redemption. This message of the gospel that brought them into a relationship with Jesus is so precious to them that of course they devoted themselves to the teaching of the apostles who explained uh, further what it is that Jesus had done uh, for them. And so they had a fellowship in the truth of the gospel and they wanted to deepen in their understanding of its implications. This message of forgiveness and being at peace with God and the gift of righteousness and being uh, adopted by God awakened within them joy. And it awakened within them more joy. It awakened within them exceeding joy as they became alive and alive and alive again and again and again to the wonders of the grace of the gospel. And they're devoted uh, to each other in the fellowship. They spend time with each other. They eat together. They're in each other's homes. They're glad to meet each other's needs. You see, they're really open to each other. There was no... uh, posturing, posing, hiding. Nobody was massaging uh, their image, working on creating an identity on social uh, media. Uh, No, they shared true intimacy. They were honest about where they were in their journey, their weaknesses and their struggles. And so they freely shared their wealth. When they saw a need in the community, uh, because their hearts were open to each other, they had no trouble opening their pocketbooks. It wasn't imposed on them. It wasn't the end of uh, the private ownership of property. It wasn't a communalism or communism. No, it was simply their hearts were open and, and generous as they saw a need in their new family. And they had joy in the presence of God. And so they worshiped both in large groups, initially in the temple until they're forced out of the temple, and informally in people's homes in small groups. They were celebrating who Jesus was and and what he had done. And they were devoted uh, to prayer, for they had experienced the joy of prayer. And they're praying together, their hearts became softer, The natural frictions between people melted. The irritation and unpleasantness dissipated. They were quick to forgive, to overlook, to find new words of encouragement and affirmation for each other. And they received fresh answers to their prayers, fresh infillings of the Holy Spirit, new people being added to the church. This is Luke's portrait 
of the prevailing church. It's a joyful community that testifies to Jesus and is attractive to outsiders. Yes, it's a community of learning that feeds on the gospel and submissive to its command. It's a community of love where people deeply love each other from the heart and a community of prayer where they gather together for extended times of corporate prayer. Now, this picture can be rather threatening. The power and the joy that we see here. And, And we can just withdraw from it, or we can hear what Luke's saying to us and believe that the gospel is true and that we can ask God to revive us and renew us so that this pattern of a prevailing church is the pattern of our church. This came as the disciples prayed and asked for what God had promised. It was persistent, prevailing prayer, corporate, united prayer, constant, frequent prayer, prayer made in faith with honest confession and bold requests. And this pattern of prayer of the Holy Spirit coming and renewing the church has been the experience of the church of Jesus Christ in the centuries since the day of Pentecost. Now, in the mid-1990s, uh, uh, I was privileged to go back to school. And one of the assignments we had was to read everything uh, that Dr. J. Edward Orr had written on the history of revivals. He's the great 20th century historian of revivals. And uh, my heart burned, just burned, as uh, I read uh, what uh, had happened in the past. And I want to relate briefly two of those moments, of many, many hundreds of moments uh, that Dr. Orr uh, has, uh, has chronicled. In 1850, in the United States, the nation was in a very weak state spiritually. People were preoccupied with material things. Their concern was to get ahead and to have more. In 1857, a very quiet 46-year-old businessman named Jeremiah Lanford felt moved to start a prayer meeting uh, in New York City, in which business people could come together and pray. He made announcements of it. He said, you can come and pray for a couple minutes, or you can can, uh, stay for an hour, just as long as you can. For the first 30 minutes in that first meeting, he prayed alone. But by the end of the hour, six other men from four denominational backgrounds had joined him. 20 came the next week, 40 the week after that, And soon they decided to meet daily, and the group swelled to over 100. Pastors started uh, morning prayer meetings in their own churches, and soon there were meetings being held all over America. Within six months, there were more than 10,000 meetings in the city of New York alone. The Holy Spirit had orchestrated this. No human being had orchestrated what took uh, place. This became what historians uh, call the second great awakening. 
And during uh, those uh, three years from 1857 to 1859, some two million people, it's estimated, came uh, to first-time faith in Jesus Christ out of a, a population of 30 million people. Two million out of the 30 million people in America. And of course, the churches came alive. In 1949, in the village of Barvis in the Hebrides Islands off of Scotland, the parish minister, along with his church leaders, began to pray for revival. Unknown uh, uh, to them, there were two sisters in that same village who were in their 80s. Their health was so poor they could not uh, come to church, and they began uh, to pray. They claimed this promise as they prayed from Isaiah. I will pour out water on the thirsty land and streams on the dry ground. On the other side of Barvis, knowing nothing about what was the other things that were taking place, were seven young men who decided to meet together in the evening three times a week in a barn to pray for revival. They committed themselves to prayer in keeping with the words of Isaiah 62. I have posted watchmen on your walls, O Jerusalem. They will never be silent day or night. You who call in the Lord, give yourselves no rest and give him no rest till he establishes Jerusalem and makes her the praise of the earth. As a result of all this prayer, God was pleased to pour out revival over the entire island in which thousands of people came to know Christ. And, uh, uh, and thousands uh, were stirred up into a vital relationship with Jesus Christ as a result. This passage that we've looked at this morning announces to us that this is possible in any church, in any age. It is God himself who must do these things. But whenever God gets ready to do something great, he starts his people in prayer. And Ori himself in all his studies of revival said, there was never one that ever came without God's people gathering for special prayer. Our church is in a very special season, a season of transition and uh, preparation. Your transition team's about to get back uh, to work after a much-deserved uh, uh, rest. And I want to urge you, I want to challenge you, I want to challenge the transition team this morning uh, to have special prayer in these next weeks. You see, you need a fresh vision as a church. You should not be content to be a middle-class American church. Do you know what it is to be middle-class in America? It is to have a comfortable life and then to keep working so it becomes more comfortable and then get it a more comfortable still. And for many, many churches in America, they have no aspiration, no spiritual aspiration besides being comfortable of gathering with people that you know and love, doing things that are familiar. 
this is not the pattern of the prevailing church, friends. May God grant to you, to the transition team, to your leaders, and to you as a congregation, a vision for the prevailing church. A church that testifies with power and attracts uh, because of its great joy. Let's pray together. Most gracious Heavenly Father, we uh, come to you and as we hear these stories of your past uh, works, your great works of power, Lord, we long uh, for that in our day. Grant, Lord, that our longing to our longing would be added faith and persevering prayer, that we might see you work afresh in our day this year in this congregation. We uh, pray that your spirit would be speaking to us and especially the transition team, that they might put into words what you have uh, for this church in its near future. For we ask this through Christ our Lord. Amen.